0: A biblical church. It's and It's a struggle, so we ask that you guys pray for us. Uh, really, there's so much for us to get through in so little time, and really the what we're going to cover really is just going to be basically a, a scratching, hopefully enough to wet your guys' lips on what God has in store for us. And So as we get started, uh, how many of you would agree that when we look at American Christianity—I say American Christianity because— That's what we have to judge everything by, that there is something radically wrong within our churches. Would everybody agree with that statement? I think we all would. I was listening to a sermon by, anybody know the name Paul Washer? Anybody ever heard of Paul Washer? It's a Southern Baptist preacher. I was listening to a sermon. It really wasn't about church. It was more about uh, biblical manhood. But he said something in that his sermon, and it broke me, and it's still breaking me because he made a comment, just a passing comment. He said, Would it benefit all of Christianity if they had your walk with Christ? Think about it. He said, not the one that everybody else sees, not the one that you exhibit at church, but the one that you have personally. Would it be better for everybody in your church to have the personal walk that you have with Jesus? Or would it be better for you to be quarantined, to be shut off? And I heard that, and it really... It broke me because we can sing a bunch of songs and we can get hyped up, but in the secret place, it doesn't matter. I was thinking, and I think Francis Chan in Crazy Love, he made this point. He said, you know, it's easy for us to point at the church and start blaming the church. Well, the church doesn't do this right. The church is supposed to be doing that, and they're supposed to be doing this. Are you doing that? Are you the one... See, the church is not an organization. You are the church. The church is made up of individuals, and we're supposed to live like it. So when we say something's wrong with the church, we have to confess something's wrong with us. If you guys have your Bibles, and the question we're really going to kind of look at today is, you know, what would it look like in my life to be like Jesus? Jesus. If you guys have your Bibles, open up the Philippians. We'll look at chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. It's a big section of scripture, but God willing, we'll get through it all. So it's Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to be reading out the ESV, the English Standard. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Will you guys pray with me? Father, Father, we come before you, God, and we want to come before you as a humble people. God, looking directly at our own lives, God, not at anybody else, God, not so we can draw comfort from anyone. Lord, God, I pray that, Lord, this word would come alive to us, God, that you give us eyes to see what it says, God, ears to hear, Father, Lord, that you would convict us of sin in our own lives. God, I pray, Lord, that we become more like your son. God, Lord, I pray for me that, Lord, that the words that I speak, God, would be the words that you would have me to speak, Father. God, i do nothing of my own power or will. Lord God, I'd be dependent upon you. Lord, we love you. We praise you, God. We ask that you have your way here. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. When you think about the book of Philippians, what you normally, and this what has always, always come to my mind, is that Philippians is a, a friendly book, right? This is the kind of book that you want to read when you get one encouragement, because the emphasis on rejoicing, rejoice. Paul says it over and over again. And in fact, it is a friendly book. It's, a, it's actually a letter between two friends. The historical background for the book of Philippians is, uh, you can go back to Acts chapter 16 when Paul receives his Macedonian call and he has this vision saying, come over here. And the first place that Paul goes over in the district of Macedonia is the Roman colony Philippi. And that's where he goes there, and there's no Jewish place of worship at all in this place. There's, in fact, there are people gathered by a riverside to worship. And he goes there, and he shares the gospel, and he casts the demon out of a, a young girl. And they, in fact, they get thrown in prison because they're advancing the gospel, and they're casting demons out of people, and because some people get mad, and they're source of income. And while they're in, even in jail, they, Paul and Silas, they rejoice in Christ, and crazy things happen, and the jailer gets saved, and... But now it's been some time and Paul's close with them. And Paul finds himself here again in prison. At the time he's in the Roman prison. And I read back towards the end of the book, of, uh, the, at the end of the book of Acts. And Paul's sitting here and he's writing to him. And the first thing, and the major theme in Philippians is not rejoicing. It's actually being like Christ. It's rejoicing in the sufferings of Christ, advancing the gospel. And Paul writes out of concern for the Philippians, more than he does anything else. He wants them to make sure that their life matches up with the gospel. That's why he tells them, make sure your lives are being, you're living lives worthy of the gospel to test your faith with fear and trembling. That's, there's an emphasis there, and, but all of that points in confines of rejoicing. That's kind of the, I want you to keep that kind of in mind because it plays into effect of what this passage has to say. And he starts off, he says, finally, my brothers, it almost seems as Paul's starting his conclusion here that finally, other translations, more accurately, say furthermore, or in addition to. See, Paul's not like, uh, you guys probably know some of the pastors, who they've been preaching for a while, and they say, I want to conclude with this. And they preach for another 20 minutes, right? That's not what Paul's doing here. Because we're only in chapter 3, There's still, we got to go through chapter 3 and chapter 4 still. And like I said, it's more of an addition to, furthermore, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't rejoice in your life, what you've been advancements, what things you've gained, what your health. Rejoice in the Lord. And it's not a, if you feel like rejoicing, then do that in the Lord. Or a, if everything's going well, it's a command. Rejoice in the Lord because of who He is, for what He's done. Find your comfort there. Rejoice in that. That's what's going to help you get through everything. And he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. And that's the biggest thing that a lot of people connect the whole, All because he's writing rejoice again. That's what Paul must be talking about here in the second half of verse 1. But notice he says things. He doesn't say say the same thing. He's not talking about rejoicing. That's a singular. He says, they write the same things to you. He's talking about plurality. And he says, and that's what kind of sets up, what he's getting ready to talk about, really. It's not the idea of rejoicing. It's the warning that's following this. But see, like I said, they're close. Okay, although we don't have any other writing to the Philippians, Paul spent a bunch of time with them. And they're close to him. He says, there's no trouble to me, and it's actually safe for you. You need to hear this again and again. And that's why sometimes you hear preachers preaching the same thing over and over again. There's actually a story of a, a pastor. He was... So broken that he, uh, for three or four Sundays, he the only thing he'd get up and say was love one another. That he would sit down. And after the third or fourth week, one of his deacons finally said, I think I know what he means. That we're supposed to be living for one We're supposed to care for one another. It took him four weeks to get that. <laughs> but hopefully it doesn't take us nearly as long to get what Paul's saying here. He says, look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There's this group. Uh, Paul fights them constantly in almost every single one of his letters. We call them Judaizers. Basically, there's this group of Jewish people who are trying to enforce on those who are non-Jewish people religious rules, like circumcision or Sabbath laws or keeping this. That it's, you can have Jesus, but you have to plus this. Salvation plus If you want to be the people of God, then you have to do something. And Paul says, look out for those dogs. Dogs were not the animal that we have today. They were not your pet. Okay, they were not the fluffy little animal. You didn't take them into your house. They were scavengers. They were wild. They were disgusting. They were considered unclean by the Jewish people. And in fact, they would always call the Gentiles dogs. Say, they're unclean. Paul takes this term and flips it right back around and says, you're the dogs. You're the one that's unclean. Look out for those evil doers. Again, remember, they're infa- literally evil workers, those who are practicing evil works because in their mindset, what are they focusing on? Focusing on works, works-based salvation. And Paul says, that's nothing but evil. It's not good works that they keep trying to tell you. It is evil work. He brings in more clarification with this next thing. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Literally, the Greek, look out for the mutilators. You're probably more familiar with what uh, Paul says in Galatians when he says, "You know, those who want you to be circumcised, I wish they go the whole way and emasculate themselves. That's what he's saying. What they're doing is doing nothing. All they're doing is destroying their body. It's of no profit. Look out for those who are promoting the destroying of your own body. Look out for those. And he says, you know, for we are the Circumcision. We are the people of God. I have to be careful here because uh, I know you guys just got off the end times series. You guys learned about premillennialism, all, millennial, all millennialism. A lot of people, and Aaron could probably tell you this. A lot of people will take verses like this and they'll attach to those and other verses, and they'll and this is somewhat more of a rabbit trail. But some of them need to be chased. Okay, you have to this is an issue and they'll take these verses and they'll say well see because this represents the covenant people of God back to Genesis 17 when God tells Abraham that him and the his descendants are to be circumcised as a sign of a covenant and it becomes into the law of Moses that this is what has to happen in order to be in the covenant. They'll take these verses and say well that because Paul calls us the circumcision because we're the covenant people of God it's called we're the new Israel and Gordon Fee I love what he said in a commentary he said, for Paul, Paul knows nothing of a new Israel. He knows of one people of God. So a lot of people take this and say, well, we've replaced Israel. That Israel basically is no more, that there's no more Israel. That God's done away with those people. But really what you see here, when you take this passage and you go to Romans 10 or 11, and you look at those passages and you see that God's making a one new man in Ephesians, that We've been grafted in, so to speak, to the promises of God. The new covenant that we are partakers of, that God would give us a new heart, that was given to literal Israel. That was given to the people of God at that time. But we've been grafted into those promises. That's why you can have salvation, is because you've been grafted in by God and to the people of God. Not of our own selves. And that's why I'm premillennial. I believe that. God is going to have a time when he turns his heart back to the people of Israel. And he starts bringing those people back in abundance into the covenant that he's promised them. But that's more of a side note anyway. uh, For we are the circumcision. We are the people of God. We are those in covenant with God who worship by the Spirit of God and glory or boast, put our trust in, put our confidence in Christ Jesus. Listen to the echoes here of what Jesus says to the woman of Samaria, when he's at the woman at the well, he says, I'll tell you, woman, there's a time coming when nobody will worship on this mountain or in this place, but people will worship by spirit and by truth. And the gospel of John, Jesus says, I am truth. So this really echoes this. This is the God-given spirit that we worship by. Some translations, more accurately again, say, I serve by. This is not talking about lifting our hands, singing praises to God. This is talking about our obedience to God. How we live our lives, how we live, again, personally. How do you live your life at home with your, those closest to you, or at work when nobody's with you at all? Or How are you worshiping? How are you serving God then? Because we can only do it by the Spirit of God. And we can put no confidence in anything else other than Christ. He is our boast. That's where our whole trust has to be. So he says, I put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul uses the term kind of here loosely because you study the scripture and Paul always talks about flesh as in this evil matter with inside of us, our sinful nature. Paul uses it both ways here. He literally means my human skin because he's talking about circumcision. I put no Confidence in my skin or in my sinful nature, my abilities. He says, but you know what? If you Judaizers really want to go there, if you really want to try to put confidence in your flesh or your achievements, I could take you there. I could go there far better than any of you could. Look at this little autobiography. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. Strict reading of the law. The people of Israel, when their little babies are to be circumcised on the eighth day, according to the Mosaic law and the Abrahamic covenant, that this is what's supposed to happen. He says, I was there. That's what happened to me. I'm an Israel, of the, of the people of Israel. I'm not a convert to Judaism. I am pure. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Which, that always struck me as funny. I was like, what in the world? the tribe of Benjamin have to do with anything. If you look at Israel's history, Deuteronomy says that Benjamin is the beloved tribe of God, that God actually carries them behind in, in his shoulders. Benjamin gives Israel their first king. There's great boast in this, King Saul, which a lot of people take what's well, Paul's name before Saul. He may, even possibly named after Israel's first king. And he goes on he says, in a also the tribe of Benjamin, when uh, in Israel's history, they split up, right? They, They have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Ten tribes to the north, but there's only two in the south, but you only hear of the tribe of Judah in the south. The only other tribe that stayed loyal to the house of David is the tribe of Benjamin. And they're actually almost associated so close to the tribe of Judah that they just kind of always just get mentioned with Judah. And so, his, this is really a great boast for him. He's saying, Look, I have a great faithfulness to the people of God. Maybe confidence in himself. And he says, And I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. A Hebrew born from Hebrews, more accurately. That both of my parents are Hebrew. I'm not mixed blood. They didn't get mixed up whenever we split up and were carried off into exile. I have pure blood running through me. What we would say is that he's a pure breed, he is solid. He says, Look, you want to put confidence in the flesh? I am the purest Hebrew. It says, we want to talk about achievements. It says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest religious group of of the first century. We all see them as the evil, wicked people that Jesus calls them. And they were because they got so many things twisted. But the basic tenets is, how many of you guys believe in a resurrection from the dead? Everybody, right? Obedience to God, right? Holy living. Uh, You know, looking for a Messiah, right? We'd all make good Pharisees. We would, because that's the basic tenets of what they believed. And Paul says, but as we know, that, that got really twisted. And there's some good Pharisees, Nicodemus, He's the only person who stays with Jesus when after he's killed. All the disciples run away. Nicodemus buries him. He's a Pharisee. But back to this, Paul says, I was a Pharisee. I adhered to the law more strictly than any other religious sect of our time. He says, in fact, I went so far that I persecuted the church. We know Paul tried to kill people for it. And he did kill people that he was there for the first martyr of Christianity that he consented to his death. And Paul says, I persecuted the church as to my zeal. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Now, Paul doesn't mean that he's righteous before God, that he can stand right before God on based off of works, because Paul knows that means nothing. But as according to righteousness, as anybody, other Jewish person could look at the life of Paul He says, nobody could ever find a fault in me at all. I was that good. I think a lot of us play that game. And this is where it starts getting real. And he says, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, whatever things they gained me, whatever I had was my gain, whatever profit I had, it means nothing to me for the sake of Christ. That it's absolutely nothing for the sake of nicety. He goes up one step further, and this kind of sets really the the tone for the rest of the passage when he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He takes this step not only the gains to his religiosity, the fact that he could keep the law and all those achievements, I count everything a loss. Whether it be comforts, his rights, his friends, family, anything. He says, indeed, I count it all uh, lost loss for their surpassing worth. Basically, everything else in life amounts to nothing compared to the knowing of Christ. He wants to know Christ. And he goes on and he says, I count, uh, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I suffered the loss. It means it hurt to give some of this up. He suffered with this, and he counts them as rubbish. And you do a word study here. uh, King James Version says, I consider it dung. I can, you know, could refer to kitchen scraps, dung. If you even do a full word study, it could refer to a dead body deteriorating. It's disgusting. And Paul says, everything compared to Christ whatever knowledge or whatever gain I could have is absolutely, totally disgusting. It's uh, it's nasty, and he doesn't want that. He says, I I consider it rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's a one big long sentence. He says, I count everything as rubbish that I may gain Jesus. That's what he wants. He doesn't want his works. He doesn't want anything other than what that which comes from God, which is Christ. And it doesn't depend on what you can do. It depends on your faith. It is not works or salvation plus works. It is salvation alone through Christ based on faith alone. That is it. You want to step it up here a little bit. It says that I may know Him, and I haven't really hit on the know part because I wanted to wait until here. And we, we talked about I want to know You, I want to touch Your face, you know, I want to know You more. He doesn't talk about this head knowledge of knowing Jesus. It's not this. I want to know Him in an intellectual kind of a way. Not. I love theology. Okay, I love. Study, and I love gaining that. But if that never moves from here to my hands and to my feet, if I never experience the great things of God, then I don't really know it. That's just like if me and my wife, if I know what she likes and know what, you know, she likes to eat or the drink and what makes her happy, but I never really do any of that stuff, it doesn't really... Matter and I fell often at that, but it's a more of a relationship, and I think sometimes we focus way too much on the relationship part of it. Sometimes, to be honest, because we come to the point where well, God's We can take it so far where God's happy with me just the way that I am and that He's my buddy and He understands. But in a real sense, when we look at it this way, that I want to know Christ, that everything is a loss compared to knowing Him and knowing Him in an intimate way of walking with Him, experiencing Him in my life. That's another thing. I don't know if you guys have been to churches where they don't really believe that it's a life to be lived, that it's really a knowledge, that they don't really expect you to experience anything with Jesus. It's depressing. I promise it's depressing. But Paul says, I want to know him this way. In fact, I want to know him so much. I want to know the power of of his resurrection. Ephesians 1 basically says the idea that, you know, the same power that raised Christ from the grave lives inside of you. For a believer, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives inside of us. Oh, I wish we would get this. I wish that I would understand this in my life because the power of the resurrection sets us free. We are now free from death, Paul says in Romans 6, that we can have life. We are able to live because of Christ. We have resurrection power inside of us and most of us walk around defeated. He says, I may share his sufferings. How badly do you want to be like Jesus? Jesus. We're talking about sufferings. We're not talking about the good things. Remember, Paul's in prison. In fact, these Philippians are suffering, Paul tells them. in the first part of this, that your opponents are coming, you know, warns them of people coming against them. And Paul's not talking nearly about physical suffering. Christ suffered in other ways. He was rejected by people. His family thought it was crazy. He says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. I want to be, I want to know Jesus to the point where I am suffering for his sake. And not that Paul's seeking it, but Jesus says, if you want, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. 2 Timothy, indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted He says, I want to be conformed to the to his death. That's hard. That's hard to hear. It's hard to take from me. That I don't want to know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. For even Jesus said something like this, didn't he? He said, if you want to follow me pick up your cross, then come follow me. The Christian life is about dying to yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and this is going to be a loose quote, but he said, you know, when Christ bids a man, he bids him to come and die. Come and die to ourselves, to join, to be so much like Christ that we can experience his power, but we can suffer with Christ, becoming conformed to him like into his death, Stephen echoes what Paul said earlier about, about Christ. If uh, you guys would, just go to chapter 2 real quick. Chapter 2, we're going to read verses 5 through 8. And this is one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. I honestly believe that. It says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the point there Paul is making is, look, Christ humbled himself, not for the benefit of himself, but gave up his rights, even to the point of dying for other people. Count yourselves, earlier before Paul even says, you know, count others better than yourself. Leads into this passage. Have this mind among you. So we're not really just talking about earthly death, although Paul will become like Jesus in his death and the fact that he'll be martyred for Christ. And we shouldn't extend it to that point. I mean, it says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And at a first glance, this seems like Paul's kind of uncertain. He's like, I want to do all this stuff. I want to know Christ that I may attain this. And the may part of that really looks like Paul's uncertain about his future. But it can't be. Because so you look at other things that Paul said and other things in Scripture. Paul says, those whom God has justified, he will also glorify. That both of those are past tense, completed actions from the standpoint of God. If, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Second 2 Timothy 2.11 There is hope, there is assurance of our future hope in Christ. And that is something to be excited about. That's something that we can actually. That I want to know Jesus. I can share in His sufferings through the power of His resurrection, becoming like His death, because I'm pressing on towards a goal. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yes. My focus is on the resurrection, and Paul says any, by any means, Paul doesn't care how he gets there. Is kind of the point. If it's by martyrdom, by death, and he says later, you know, Christ will come and transform our lowly bodies. And other scriptures, not all will sleep. If even if he comes back now I don't care and it can, kind of connects to the next section of scripture which we definitely don't have time to get into but it says in verse 12 not that I've attained this or are already perfect but I've pressed on to make it my own this focus this is my ultimate goal nothing in this world matters at all to knowing Christ I started off by Talking about the church, and we talked about ourselves. What would it look like for us to be like Christ? What would that look like in our lives? And it's amazing. uh, I've not talked to anybody from church T except through email. Me and Aaron try to call each other, text each other. We just cannot do it at all. We never get each other. The worship team had no idea what I was going to be speaking on. I promise. And the only thing they could sing about was wanting to be like Christ, wanting to know Him, to seeking Him in a secret place, to know Him, to touch Him, pressing on for a goal. I kept hitting Bridget over, I was like, that's my sermon. Hey, and she's like, what's wrong? I was like, it's my sermon, it's okay. The thing we need to ask ourselves is first of all, are you trusting anything other than Christ alone for your salvation? Because you can't, it's not. Faith in Christ plus something will get you saved. Paul says in verse four, look, the people of God worship by the spirit of God and put their trust in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. If you're trusting anything else, repent of it. Turn away from it and trust Christ alone. He's the reason that we're supposed to be rejoicing, right? He's the reason that we can live like we have hope because of Christ. Another thing. What are you counting as a loss? What things are you suffering the loss of in order to know Christ? Because we are an an entertainment-driven society. And we get so much of our time ate up by so many things. Hobbies, sports, friends, TV, Facebook. All that kills our time, and we act like it has some kind of value, but if you 're spending more time doing that than you are seeking the face of god it's it's wicked to say it nonetheless. so I ask you, you say we sing that we want to be like him, that we want to know him, but what are you willing to give up? It costs something. Paul says everything is nasty, disgusting, rubbish compared to that worth of knowing him. But do we believe that? Do we really honestly believe that? Do we live like that? It's a question you have to answer for yourself. You guys pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I am humbled by the fact that, Lord, you've orchestrated this in your way that god that through the worship work